Welcome to Managed Carecast, a podcast from the American Journal of Managed Care. This is Jamie Rosenberg, Assistant Editor for the American Journal of Managed Care, and during today's podcast, we'll be sitting down with one of the authors of a study published in this month's issue of AJMC. To date, most payment models that have emerged in the shift toward value-based care have been initiated by payers and focused on primary care providers. However, there has recently been a new wave of payment reform in which providers, mostly specialists, are designing and implementing their own alternative payment models in their practices. They're doing this through the Physician-Focused Payment Model Technical Advisory Committee, or PTAC, which was created by MACRA. A study published in this month's issue analyzed some of these new payment models to gain insight into what providers are prioritizing in their APMs. To get more insight into the study and its findings, we spoke with study author Suhas Gandhi of Harvard Medical School. So the first question I had for you was, what was your research question and why did you decide to study it? So in 2015, when Congress passed the Medicare and CHIP Reauthorization Act, or MACRA, they established a federal task force called PTAC. Uh, and the goal of PTAC was to, and is, to solicit proposals for alternative payment models that are designed by provider organizations. And PTAC is charged with reviewing those proposals and helping to improve them and then recommending to the Secretary of Health and Human Services which ones, if any, to adopt and experiment with or even scale um, as payment models uh, through the Medicare program. We decided to study the proposed models that had been submitted to PTAC for, for a number of reasons. Well, the biggest one is that these models are really unique in that they're designed and submitted by physicians, which is a pretty stark contrast from many, if not most, um, current value-based payment models, which were largely developed by, by payers, including CMS as well as um, private payers. The, uh, another big reason why we chose to look at these uh, models is because most models to date Alternative payment models focus largely on primary care physicians and their role in quarterbacking the care team, coordinating care across a number of providers, and promoting prevention and high-value care. However, most healthcare spending is actually driven by specialists who have traditionally been a little bit less involved in value-based payment models, partly because many specialties actually have less opportunities um, in our current system to participate in alternative payment models. So for, for those, these reasons, we felt that uh, a qualitative analysis of these models, most of which were submitted by specialists, um, would reveal some insights into how physician organizations, and particularly specialists, think about alternative payment models and think about how they want to participate in value-based care and under what terms they want to participate in value-based care. And now, looking at your findings, what do they tell us about how providers, including specialists, are viewing APMs? So I think um, they tell us a few things about how providers are thinking about alternative payment models. One is they are, our findings reflect a willingness amongst many providers, many, many of them specialists, to assume financial risk and 
that includes downside risk, which is really a departure from the reality today in which most providers, of course, are under no financial risk. And even those who are, for instance, most Medicare ACOs um, actually operate without any downside risk. So I think that's kind of one of the one of the big things um, that we found is that providers would actually welcome financial risk. Well, kind of within that, it also seems like they seem to be most comfortable with bundled payments, which was the most commonly proposed mechanism to take on financial risk in the proposals. Uh, another thing we found is that teams like providers view alternative payment models as a way to fund new technologies that they otherwise can't get funding for. Um, and there's a number of great examples of this and that we can dig into, but new, new technologies, everything from mobile applications to Bluetooth-enabled blood pressure monitors and other ways of home monitoring that represent kind of a new a new era of care where that, that is digitally enabled, but that there is little funding for now. And so they view APMs as a way to to get to that digital um, that digital era of care delivery. And then I think the, a, a final thing I'd mention is that um, it seems like specialists are willing to take on the quarterback role for their patients. They're willing to take on the care coordination and management roles that were typically reserved for primary care physicians. And that's an important development. Since these are specialty-specific proposals, um, they actually make sense for a number a number of reasons. For instance, um, maybe nephrologists should be the quarterbacks of care for patients with end-stage renal disease. Maybe that's a more appropriate practitioner for that subset of patients. And what these proposals tell us is that specialists are willing to take on those, those coordinator roles and gatekeeper roles that they generally have not done. I thought it was really interesting that you mentioned the technology part. Do you mind digging a little deeper into that and kind of explaining more how, um, how providers are using these APMs to kind of drive that? I thought that was a really interesting point you made. Yeah, so I can give a, a few examples um, that we, uh, we cover in our paper for the type, the type of technological innovation that would be possible, or, or that at least that these providers envision as possible um, within alternative payment models. So one example is the COPD and asthma monitoring project. Um, in that proposal, um, physicians, um, many of them pulmonologists, proposed basically a, a new infrastructure that would allow them to that would allow remote monitoring of their patients with COPD uh, and or asthma. And so that infrastructure included a mobile app to help track the member input, so patients actually um, interacting with the application and putting in either different, basically um, the frequency or intensity of exacerbations, um, as well as that mobile app being a way that providers can communicate with patients and better engage them. Some of the more, more advanced aspects of that infrastructure were a Bluetooth-enabled digital peak flow meter, um, which would allow patients to basically do pulmonary function testing at home and then transmit that data to their physicians in a way that's easier for them to see. So that allows more frequent monitoring of the status of their COPD um, and their lung function, um, as well as um, a more convenient way um, to do that. So that's an example of the kinds of technologies that physicians want to be able to use. But in our current system, in a fee-for-service reimbursement structure, there's no way to really invest in that unless there are billing codes 
um, which right now there aren't for a lot of these new technologies. And so what these proposers proposed was a monthly fee for remote monitoring management. Um, and as part of that fee, kind of like a capitated per member per month payment that would then cover the cost of this type of technological infrastructure. And that was a, a common thread amongst many of the proposals, PMPM, basically care management payments um, that could be used to fund this sort of infrastructure. Great. Yeah, definitely thought that was a really interesting point that you brought up. And now looking at these findings, how do they either support or contrast with what payers and policymakers might think that providers feel about taking financial risk? So I think that many payers and policymakers think that providers are a little queasy about taking on financial risk and want to limit their exposure. And I think traditionally that that may have been true. And it's probably true in many cases, but but these proposals, which admittedly are from a self-selected group, those who wanted to submit proposals to the PTAC, they they reflect a willingness to take on both upside and downside financial risk and to be measured and to be held accountable for quality metrics that are specific to their specialty, um, of which there are very few in practice today. So I think that generally there's this idea that payers and policymakers have to coerce practicing physicians and other providers into participating in value-based care. And I think that's rooted partially in the notion that doctors don't want to worry about costs and are resistant to changing their age-old clinical practices for any reason, let alone financial considerations. But the groups that propose payment models to PTAC are evidence that that notion is a little bit flawed and that value-based care is not something that payers have to do to providers to make them more accountable, rather it's something they can do with providers. And the popularity of PTAC, shown by the number of very detailed proposals that it's, it's received, demonstrates that physician groups and specialists want to be partners in the pursuit of value in, in this transition that we're in from fee-for-service towards payment models that promote better care and that hopefully also disincentivize wasteful care. And many doctors and doctor groups don't just want to participate in that transition, but they want to help drive it by helping to design what the future might look like for them and their colleagues. And that's what PTAC is all about. Right. And so what seem to be the most important qualities of payment models that can make them acceptable to providers? Yeah, it's a great question. I think there's there's a number of things that come through um, in these proposals that would be instructive for um, payers and policymakers or anyone who's de- who's designing about payment, designing payment models. Importantly, the quality metrics that are chosen need to make sense for the specialty. They need to be evidence based and they need to be medically relevant. Unfortunately, there's a lot of quality metrics out there, both process and outcome measures, that are not very clinically meaningful. And so it's important to be very thoughtful about which metrics are chosen. And often the ones that are most important or that are clinically meaningful are sometimes the hardest ones to measure. And so that's why we've seen so many uh, measures that are not as, not as clinically relevant. And I think it's important to be, um, to be thoughtful about that. Additionally, I think that providers need to have agency over what they're being held accountable for. So holding doctors accountable for medication adherence, for instance, without giving them the tools to help ensure that their patients are adherent to whatever medication regimen has been spelled out is is a recipe for um, provider disengagement. Medication adherence is a really complex problem that's influenced by far more than clinical factors. 
And so uh, without giving providers the tools, the resources, which include human resources in the form of either case managers or social workers, as well as some you know, technological infrastructure like the ones we discussed before, th- those kinds of tools will, will be important for um, physicians to be able to actually act on the things that we're holding them accountable for. I think the worst thing a payment model can do is penalize a physician for something they had no control over. And that's a really important thing to remember as we try to incorporate the social determinants of health into care delivery. We need to make sure we're empowering provider organizations to identify, screen for, and address social determinants of health if we're going to hold them accountable for outcomes that are highly influenced by social determinants of health, like mortality, readmissions, et cetera. And then a couple other things I'd mention is that um, it seems like downside risk uh, does need to be capped, uh, or at least that's what providers are looking for. They still, while they're willing to take on some degree of downside risk, they seem unwilling uh, at this stage to risk the floor falling out below them. Um, so most of these pr- proposals included caps on downside risk. And then finally, many proposals also requested safe harbor exemptions from Stark Law and anti-kickback statutes um, because those laws, while uh, while they are important to ensure that there's there's a financially motivated uh, referrals, they can also be an obstacle to the formation of alternative payment models. And so, some legal exemptions uh, are would also be important qualities that um, providers might look for. So, before we talked about technology use, but how else did some of the physician proposed payment models include different innovative ideas? Were there any other ideas that they implemented other than technology? Yes. Besides technology, I think there was a lot of changes proposed to the structure of care teams, um, as well as to the degree of case management that occurs. And I think that that reflects an understanding that managing really complex patients with prostate cancer or end-stage renal disease or with serious illness towards the end of life requires a lot of non-clinical resources that there often just isn't enough funding for. And so I think reimagining the structure of the care team to include social workers and spiritual health professionals was one uh, kind of innovative inclusion. Further, there was, to some extent, there's kind of a, in these proposals, it seems like there's a broadening vision of what is within the scope of traditional medicine, um, which, you know, is usually within the walls of some kind of medical center, but the, many of these proposals propose care extending into the home through home hospitalizations or through palliative care services delivered at home, um, as well as a lot of the more active surveillance and remote monitoring um, pieces that, that we discussed before that can also take place in the home. So I think um, kind of broadening the scope of what we think about as our interaction with the medical system um, is another key feature. So the final question I had for you was, what are some key next steps for payers and policymakers to encourage more providers to join APMs? The, the number one thing I could say here is, for payers and policymakers is to work with providers to develop the APMs that you want them to participate in. There's so many aspects of these payment models that would benefit from clinician input. And if clinicians, practicing clinicians, can help design the models, that'll make the models more clinically relevant. It'll make the, it'll ensure that the quality metrics that are included are medically meaningful. 
And I would be very confident that you'd see more provider uptake, even even amongst providers who weren't directly involved in the APMs, because in the APM development, just because knowing that their colleagues, that practicing physicians help design the models, help choose the quality metrics, help hash out what the financial details would be, I think gives confidence to clinicians that this is something that will still allow me to practice the type of medicine that I want to practice, still allow me to take good care of my patients, but also do something else I want to do, which is, which is help uh, promote better care and more value uh, in our healthcare system. And so I think you'd see a lot more willingness to participate if the development of APMs was done with providers. And I also think you'd probably see better results in the end, too. And was there anything else you wanted to mention and bring up before I let you go? I think um, I would just make sure I, I shout out my co-authors who were really helpful and helped guide this paper in, in really meaningful ways. My mentor, uh, Zuri Song, who is you know an incredible expert uh, and economist um, in health policy and also a practicing physician. And so... He, he very much um, is kind of at the nexus of, of the practice of medicine as well as um, health policy in important ways and helped guide this paper. Um, and then as well as my other two co-authors, uh, Tim Ferris and Kavita Patel, who are also are both practicing physicians and happen to sit on PTAC, the committee, and so their perspectives were incredibly insightful. And I think our collective hope is that by giving some insight into what these models have shown, we can help expedite the translation of these models from proposals into actually affecting practice and payment in big ways. To read the study, visit ajmc.com or see the show notes. You can get in touch with us by emailing info at ajmc.com or by following us on Twitter at ajmc underscore journal. And finally, if you like the podcast, don't forget to read and subscribe. Thanks for tuning in.